jump back in to where we left off. We had been working through this, uh, this process model here that uh, describes the procurement process, and we, uh, to this point, have talked about the trigger for the process and the different ways that the process could begin. Um, this is not certainly an all-inclusive or exhaustive list of the triggers, uh, but certainly the one element here that is fairly universal is the um, requirements determination phase being based on the idea of a purchase requisition and that leading us to uh, ultimately issuing a purchase order for the things that, that we would want to purchase. And, and this is what we talked about at the very end of our time together last week, that uh, we have to figure out who we are going to buy things from. And so most organizations will maintain a source list that would be a very guarded uh, document for that organization that defines who they can purchase from and who they cannot. And companies typically will maintain lists like this uh, primarily as a vehicle for combating fraud. And uh, every so often you hear about stories or read things in the newspapers about businesses that have been defrauded uh, in part from buying from companies that turned out not to be legitimate companies. Or sometimes even you'll hear stories about companies that get invoices and pay those invoices without realizing that they never in fact ordered the things uh, that they allegedly ordered. There's a, a scam that regularly happens in this area that my um, wife has had people attempt to scam her before where they'll call her office at the university and ask about sending supplies for their printers and copiers. And it's someone that if they get the person on the other end to agree to that, they send them a whole bunch of stuff and then send them an invoice and they try and make it sound like they're the actual bona fide ETSU supplier when in fact they are not. So a source list helps organizations uh, make sure that they're only dealing with companies that have been properly vetted and that they can um, purchase from that company with, with confidence. We talked about this previously, the idea of us possibly having some kind of contract in place that would govern purchases that, that we would make. For example, we might sign a contract with another organization that says that over the course of the year we agree to buy at least 100,000 units from you and if we do that, you'll give us a certain price for that. And so the terminology that goes with this is if we are submitting a, a purchase order that is, is going to be related to that kind of contract, we have what is called here uh, an outline purchase agreement. And the outline purchase agreement would list, okay, this is the source and this is the pricing that we have from that particular source. And, and that will be put into the ERP system for various entities in our organization to make reference to and to use that pricing. And so what happens here is as people place orders that relate to that particular contract or agreement, the term that we use for that is saying that things are called off. So if we agree to buy 100,000 units 
over the course of a year and someone places an order for 5,000 units, then at that point 5,000 units have been called off against that contract. And so all that is left to purchase at this point would be 95,000 more units. And so the terminology here, we have uh, purchasing contracts which obligate us to purchase a particular amount during a particular time frame. We get certain benefits and typically contracts are written such that there are penalties in there if we don't fulfill them. Scheduling agreements are the same kind of thing. It's not really a contractual uh, relationship, but a vendor has told us, okay, if you purchase between this much and this much, this is your price, and they give us kind of a, a set of prices at different volume levels, and so as we make purchases, we reference that, and so cumulatively as our organization makes more and more purchases, our price goes down reflective of the agreement that we have with this organization. And so what's actually happening here as we call off various items in orders that we place, that will, that will ultimately release us from our obligation. And so as these particular purchases fulfill contract obligations, then those orders are called release orders. So if I agree to buy 100,000 units, and I fulfill that by calling off an order of 100,000 units, then at that point I'm released from that order because I have fully fulfilled the obligation here. So the terminology really is the only thing that perhaps could be a little bit um, confusing. The actual logistics of this I think are very straightforward. We have an agreement with another company and so as we place orders we want to make sure that we get credit for those orders against the agreement that we have signed with those institutions. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Yes, yes, contracts. Thank you. I'll circle that to fix that for the future. So yes, against contracts or scheduling agreements. Got it right down here, but missed it above that. Thank you. Other questions? All right, so the purchase order process. As we observed on the last slide, there's lots of different ways I could create purchase orders. In fact, you could go into the system and, and just create a purchase order without reference to anything else. Uh, so I could create a purchase order that way. I could create a purchase order with reference to a purchase requisition. I could create a purchase order with reference to a request for quotation. I could create a purchase order referencing a quotation. Or I could create a purchase order that references other purchase orders. So in fact, there's lots of different ways that I could create purchase orders in the system. So there's lots of different triggers. This particular box here just shows a few of them. As far as the data and the purchase order itself, we'll, we'll dig into that in a moment here. But it's not really that significant um, a, a thing that, that has any points, potential points of confusion. A purchase order, however, is a very, very important document in the context of our organization. We probably have made this observation before, but I'll reiterate it here. A purchase order is a legal document. And so if I send a purchase order to a vendor and that vendor accepts that purchase order and sends me the merchandise, 
I am legally obligated to pay for it under the terms as set forth in the purchase order. So most companies will have very, very careful processes about the issuing of a purchase order because it does contractually obligate the organization. That document also becomes very important to us in the goods receipt process. Really, the people in our organization that receive goods should not receive anything unless they could match it up with a purchase order that demonstrates that we did in fact order it. And it's going to be very important as well in the invoice verification process. And I think we've talked about this before. We may reiterate some elements of this, the, the three-way match that we do in determining whether or not we should pay a particular bill. Um, one of the key documents in that is going to be the purchase order. What's notable about this, and, and this is something definitely to put a star next to in your notes here, is there is no financial accounting or cost accounting impact associated with issuing a purchase order. And, and that's kind of unusual because as I observed a moment ago, a purchase order is a legal document. So I, if I send out a purchase order and that purchase order is accepted, I have obligated my company to make that purchase, but yet nowhere in my financial accounting transactions would I see that memorialized. And once again, if a company doesn't want it to work that way, they can turn on commitment management. And if a company turns on commitment management in their system, then that would be recognized in their financial accounting and cost accounting systems as something where they have committed to a future cash flow to pay for this item that, that they are purchasing. So there's no FI documents, there's no CO documents, there's no material documents associated with the issuing of the, of the purchase order. That doesn't mean, of course, that there are no documents at all. What what document is there here? What's that? That's not a kind of document. It is a legal document, that's true, but that's not a kind of document we talk about in the context of a information system. Not intended to be a tricky question. What's that? The purchase order is a document, yes, but what kind of document is it? What kind of document is it? It is a transaction document. Okay, remember we have four different kinds of documents. We have financial accounting documents, we have cost accounting documents, we have material documents, and we have transaction documents. So what we have just observed is that a purchase order is one example of a transaction document, okay? And a purchase order represents transactional information. Uh, quite obviously, we are uh, executing a transaction with a business partner related to purchasing items from that particular entity. So there's no FI documents, there's no CI documents, but what there is here is there is a transaction document. Okay? All right, so what goes on to a purchase order? Um, we can reference other transaction documents. Notice here, other transaction documents that are relevant in the purchasing process. 
the purchase requisition, the request for quotation, an actual quotation itself. All of those are transaction documents. And so they may have information in them that we will reference in our purchase order. In your lab work, at least in one sequence of exercises, you copied the items from a purchase requisition onto your purchase order. Very, very common for that to be done. And there literally, you might remember, you looked up your purchase requisition, it showed up on the left-hand side of the screen, you highlighted the purchase requisition number and click the Adopt button. And that caused everything in that purchase requisition to be copied over to the purchase order. So that's an example of what we're talking about here. Lots of data otherwise than that, though, on the purchase order. We've got to list the materials. We've got to list the vendor. We've got to list the conditions. Remember, that's a reference to pricing. We may also reference contracts and agreements if those things are, are part of um, this particular purchase. And then um, the user, really, the only element here, it's kind of an odd part of this diagram from your book. They just verify all that data is correct and then elect to save the document. And so um, the things that are actually on a purchase order, pretty, pretty straightforward. The purchase order itself has a header and has line item details. A purchase order always has a number associated with it so that we can keep track of it. It will list the, the payment terms. That's very important to us. That's going to be things like uh, 210, net 30, or other things of that sort, which um, what, did we, what did we call elements related to payment terms that comes into play other than this right here? What's the other element of this, the term that we used? Incoterms, okay? Incoterms here would be specified uh, as far as the responsibility of the different parties related to shipment and so on. Uh, we have a vendor that's referenced here and then we have currency. This is going to be denominated in U.S. dollars or euros or whatever um, might be the case. And then down in the line item section, we have material numbers, we have quantities, we have delivery dates, and we have prices. So some of the things here to note is you can have one purchase order that has different delivery dates. So notice that's why the delivery date goes with each individual item as opposed to the delivery date being here in the header section. But apart from that designation in that fashion, uh, I don't know that there's really thing, anything else here that is notable or unusual. Quite obviously, every line item is going to have its own price and every line item is going to have its own quantity and so on. And so the structure of the document is pretty straightforward. Once the purchase order is issued, then the next element here is communication related to the purchase order. And so we have our purchase order over here as the vendor kind of a spooky diagram here of a vendor without a face, but nonetheless, um, here we'll do that. There's our vendor, okay. So purchase order, that even, I don't know if that looks even spookier now, but at least it's a friendly vendor. Okay, so uh, certainly we have to send the purchase order. Now, as far as how that can be done, we can configure this. We can send it US mail, which almost nobody does anymore, but it's still a viable alternative. 
Um, we can email the document. We can fax the document. Uh, we can employ web services as a way of transmitting it electronically. Uh, we can do electronic document uh, interchange. I, I worked for an organization in the past, and email was present at that point, but they still took a lot of their orders in by way of fax, and they actually ran um, a fax farm. They had 50 different <coughs> phone lines coming in, that were all attached to, quote, fax machines, but the fax machines really were just computers. And um, they would take in all the documents. They would not print them simultaneously with receiving the document. Every couple of hours, someone would go over to the fax farm, and it was hooked up to a set of six different laser printers, and they'd click a few buttons, and all of the faxes would start printing out on hard copy, and then they would take that over and enter them into another system. They eventually uh, invested in software that let them do optical character, optical character recognition on the faxes so that uh, the orders could be brought into the system in that fashion without them having to retype it. Uh, of course, because a fax is not going to come through as uh, something that can immediately go into a computer, whereas with EDI or some of these other things, you could be looking at direct computer-to-computer -computer, um, communication. So we transmit the purchase order to the vendor. Uh, one would hope that the vendor would acknowledge the purchase order and let us know that they are planning to accept it. Um, we would not want to send a vendor a purchase order and have them reject it and not communicate that to us. We need to know what's going on here. And then the other elements here become a little bit more uh, optional. We looked at this before, an expedite request. I think I showed you this in the system. This is kind of the electronic version of, in my mind, at least nagging. You know, we place an order that's supposed to arrive on November 30th and we sent out the purchase order on, let's say, October 10th. And so maybe on November 1st, we send an expedite request, which just basically means, hey, don't forget, you're supposed to send this to us by November 30th. And we can have the system pri uh, periodically send those reminders out to our vendors. I have no idea how typical that is. I would guess that most companies send the purchase order and then just rely on their vendor to fulfill it as required. But you can configure the system to send these reminders and these requests. Um, the vendor, for their part, they can send the acknowledgement. Or they could send a rejection notice, which is what you would expect them to do if for some reason they get a purchase order that they cannot accept they send us back the rejection notice. And then the next time we expect to hear from them is information related to shipment scheduling. So they might contact us and say, uh, we're supposed to deliver this by uh, uh, November 30th, and our truck will be at your dock at you know 9.30 a.m. on November 30th to make the delivery. A lot of companies will schedule their deliveries and issue time slots to vendors and so on to try and balance the workload of people in receiving. And so the shipping notice enables us to, to do that within our organization. If it's something we're buying that's coming to us via UPS or FedEx, you would expect the shipping notice to include things like tracking numbers and other things of that sort. 
So this is just the elements of uh, communicating the purchase order to to the vendor and then hearing back from the vendor. Questions or comments? Pretty straightforward stuff, important, but, but nothing really uh, significant for us to talk about beyond what we have done. And so at this point now, we've gone from purchase requisition to figuring out who we are going to buy from, to evaluating that, to issuing the purchase order. So now the next step here is, is actually getting the stuff in, the, the goods receipt. And now we are going to start to see uh, some things will, that will warrant a little bit of attention from us. The trigger for goods receipt is, surprise, surprise, getting the delivery from the vendor. So when a truck pulls up to your loading dock and says, hey, I've got some stuff for you, that's the trigger for goods receipt going to happen at that point. And that particular, the task there is going to be we're going to verify the receipt of the materials. Okay, we ordered 10 of this. We look at it. It appears to be what we ordered. It appears to be not defective. And so, sure, we will take this, and then we're going to memorialize that in a goods receipt document. But notice all of the outcomes that we're going to talk about here that relate to this, this goods receipt process because that's where now we're, we're going to start to see some interesting things going on. The vendor will include with the shipment um, different terms here, same idea, delivery document or a packing list, which is something that the vendor puts with the shipment as kind of a cover document that describes what it is that is in this particular shipment. Realizing, of course, that one purchase order might result in multiple shipments, and so we look at this and say, okay, this delivery just has these expected items and these expected documents. And what we are going to do is we are going to create a goods receipt document, there's going to be a material document created, and there's going to be an accounting document created. So of our different classes of documents now, we see that we have really three different ones. We have a transaction document, which is this goods receipt document, and then we have a material document and the accounting document here that we are going to focus on will be the FI document. So really, um, we don't see a CO document here at this point, but that does somewhat depend on what it is that we have purchased. Now notice this right here, PR and PO updated. Um, purchase requisition and purchase order are going to be updated. Those two documents carry with them kind of a special significance. A purchase order and a purchase requisition are both considered to be what we call live documents. Uh, sometimes you'll hear reference to this in organizations where people talk about living documents. The same idea. The idea here is just that as things happen throughout the purchasing process, those documents are going to be updated. So if I wanted to find out the status of a particular order, I could do that by pulling up the purchase order and on the purchase order in the information there, there's going to kind of be a play-by-play -play of all the steps that have been concluded up to that point. So 
when the goods receipt occurs, we're going to create the goods receipt document, we're going to create a material document, we're going to create a financial accounting document, and then we're going to go and update these two other documents to let them know that, that this has, has occurred. Well, let's look at the goods receipt document. The goods receipt document is going to reference the purchase order and reference the material and quantities off of the purchase order to know what it is that we're supposed to get. And so the idea here is pretty straightforward. If we ordered material ATX10 and the driver has pulled up to our delivery dock and is dropping off to us what we would call material ATX100, we have a discrepancy here. And we probably don't want that other material. And so it's very important as a part of the goods receipt process that the people doing the receiving know what it is that we have ordered, which really makes it a little bit more complicated than one might think at first glance. The people that work receiving for your organization have to be at least trained well enough to know what it is that they should be looking for and how it is that they should be inspecting the material. Many, many, many years ago at this point, I used to work in the restaurant business and um, used to watch the chefs when they would check delivery of different items. And one of the things that happens in a really good high-end restaurant is the chefs will be very, very careful about the items that they get in. And our fish chef used to take the fish out and inspect them very carefully and run his hands along the fish because I don't know a lot about fresh fish, but I know from, from what he indicated that if the, if the um, and I lost the term, what's it called, the, the scaly stuff on the outside of a fish. Is it scales? <laughs> okay, so the scaly stuff called scales, if, if you run your finger along it and it feels slimy, that's not good. If you run your fingers along it and it comes off, that's not good. You know, fresh fish, the, the scales should adhere to the fish. They would pull back the gills and, like, look at certain things, and, and they'd send stuff back. Um, and, and the delivery driver might be delivering five flats of strawberries, and I'm sure it was just coincidental that the top four flats were perfect, and then the fifth one had a lot of moldy strawberries on it, and it was covered up by the other four flats. So they would go through very meticulously and check everything before they would sign to accept it. You want that to happen in your organization for the people doing goods received. So they're going to reference the purchase order. They're going to look at the delivery document that came from the vendor. Okay, so this is the, the document that came with the shipment itself from our vendor. And that vendor is going to reference our purchase order number. So that way our people can use that to look up the purchase order in the system and say, okay, yeah, this delivery goes along with this, and this delivery document is going to list the materials and the quantity. So, so they're going to compare this with this right here. And what will they be attentive to as they are making that comparison? What now comes into play here that we have talked about before? Give you a hint. Starts with the letter T. And it's not tacos. Not transaction. Not 
tostados. What? What? No, not total. Tolerance. Yeah, they're going to be attentive to tolerances because I might have ordered, let's say I issued a purchase order for 100 pounds of something, and the delivery document indicates that there are 98 pounds being delivered. Well, do I take that? Do I tell the vendor they still owe me two pounds, or do I just take the 98 pounds and call it good? Those are the kinds of things that um, that our, our, our goods receipt people need to be trained on, and when they key this into the system, the system's going to accept or not accept their entry on that basis. And so what the user puts in is they basically put in their verification, they put in any changes, like the fact that we only got 98 pounds instead of 100, uh, the receiving plant and the storage location, this is basically where they're putting the stuff that they got in. I'm going to send it to this location for storage. And, and then the movement type here, which the movement type is going to be a goods receipt. But is it a goods receipt against a purchase order? Is it a goods receipt against something else? That will be noted as well in this goods receipt document. This is a critical, critical step in the process here because at goods receipt, for the most part, this is where we memorialize in our system that we now own and control this particular item. So this is how something gets into our system, and therefore we take over tracking it and using it in our business operations. So one of the things that happens at the time of goods receipt is a goods receipt document gets created. The other thing that happens is two other documents get created, a material document and an accounting document. So the material document is what's on the left side of the red line, and the accounting document is what's on the right side of the line. And in fact, these two documents that are being shown to us are facsimiles of the exact same transaction, of the exact same goods receipt. What do you notice as being different about these two documents. Um, I don't know. When you say one details the items, not really sure what you mean by that. You might be thinking the right thing. What's that? Okay, so you're saying that one of them but what what particular does one of them tell me about the materials that the other one? Okay, so this is focused on the quantity of the materials, where this is focusing on the, in this case, the dollar value of the materials. So the material document is totally focused on the quantity and where it's going. Okay, so... I got this particular item, I got 500 of them, and it's going to plan MI00, movement type 101. The accounting document, notice the material document says nothing about dollars and cents, and the accounting document says nothing about quantities. Um, it's just totally focused on the debits and credits 
associated with this particular activity. So we have the goods receipt document, which memorializes the overall goods receipt and, and contains a variety of information related to that. We have the material document that's going to go into the system that is going to uh, contain information about the quantity. And then we have the accounting document that's created that's going to capture the financial accounting implication. Now realize, for the guy or the gal that's working at the receiving dock, they count the boxes, they make sure everything's good, they walk over to their computer and type some things in, or maybe they're using a scanning gun and they scan some things and maybe enter a few codes and press enter. And then at that point, the system actually takes care of automatically creating these documents. So it's not like the person on the goods receipt doc is saying, okay, now I need to create the material document, now I need to create the accounting document. No, they just scan the gun, we got 10 boxes of this from this vendor, enter, they move on to the next thing they have to do, and the system automatically creates all of these documents. Now that leads us to, okay, you know, how does it know what accounts gets debit and credited? Is it always the same accounts? How does this work? And so let's talk about that. What is the financial accounting impact of us receiving goods? And I am particularly talking about here valuated stock. What does that mean? Someone explain to us in a sentence or two what it means when I say valuated stock. talked about this, I think, last time. It's a critical concept. What's that? That comes into play, but that's not like the driving concept here. We track it as assets. That's the key thing I'm looking at. Valuated stock is something that in the context of our financial accounting records, these are, these are assets. Okay, and so when I receive the goods, I will debit the appropriate account based on what it is that I received, and all that's going to trace back to their valuation class. So the goods receiving person says, um, I got, we got in 100 units of this. And the system says that material is a member of this valuation class, which means that it maps to this particular asset account, which in this example means that our inventory trading goods account has a debit of $7,500. The associated credit is the GRIR account. GR slash IR stands for goods receipt slash invoice receipt. And those are the only two things that happen when I receive a material if it's valuated stock. So notice all these other accounts here that we have T's for, nothing. We don't touch the vendor account, we don't touch the bank account or accounts payable. So true or false, at goods receipt, we credit the vendor account relative to the amount of money that we owe them. False. We do not record any obligation at the time of goods receipt. All I am recording at the time of goods receipt is that I now own 
more assets than I did before that truck pulled up and unloaded its stuff. And so I'm debiting the appropriate account or accounts based on what it is that was in this particular shipment. And the offsetting credit is going to this goods receipt invoice receipt account. Yes, sir. We'll get to that in just a second. Because, yeah, there will definitely be an offsetting, an offsetting entry here. It's what now? No. This would be the first posting to that account. Okay? Yes, that's, and, yeah, we'll get to that. But as far as our walkthrough, this is the first time we've touched those accounts. Now, let's do scenario number two here. Suppose it's non-valuated stock. Well, remember that we said with non-valuated stock, we just write things off as an expense. So in that case over here, if this is our good old friend, what we talked about mopping solution last time, we might have a supplies expense account. And so in that case, we would be debiting supplies expense. That's some pretty expensive mop water there, but we'd be debiting supplies expense by $7,500 the credit would not be changed, okay? So the only difference here is if it's valuated, we're debiting an asset account. If it's non-valuated, then we'd be debiting an expense account of some sort. All right, so this slide is one that has a lot of really good test questions off of. So what happens when goods are received? Let's just kind of treat this like a checklist and go down it and make sure we understand this. The material master gets updated. Why does the material master get updated? Because we now have more of something than we had before. So the count of those items and the value of those items, if they are valuated materials, is going to be reflected in the material master. So the material master will be updated based on the material document and the financial accounting document. Remember that if it's a consumable material, we might not have a material master. And so if a material master exists, no value is reflected. All right, so what I'm saying there is if it's a consumable material and we have a material master, we update the count. But we don't record values for non-valuated slash consumable materials because we do not track them as assets. All right, so, so one of the things that happens when goods are received is the material master is updated accordingly to show quantities and values for valuated materials or just quantities for non-valuated materials. As we just observed, an FI document is created that will show us either debiting inventory and crediting goods receipt slash invoice receipt, or debiting an expense account and crediting goods receipt, invoice receipt, exactly what I just went through on the last slide. So the material master gets updated, the FI document gets updated. A material document gets created. The material document is going to memorialize that we got in 50 of this and I'm putting it in storage location TG10 in plant DL17. 
And so a material document showing quantities and storage locations is created related to the goods movement that's a part of the put away process. Now I will emphasize at this point, this is assuming that I'm not doing warehouse management because warehouse management introduces other steps here as you are seeing in some of the labs that you are doing. But at this point, we're assuming, no, I just do straight going into a storage location. I don't worry about shelves or other things like that. Quality management inspection is triggered if I have quality management turned on. So quality management is this. There are lots of things that I might buy that the people that work on the receiving dock really are not qualified to be able to inspect. You know, for example, maybe it's a chemical and a chemist is going to have to do analysis on the chemical to make sure that it's the right purity. Well, my agreement with my vendor will be such, and this would be standard for that vendor in their practices with all of their customers, my agreement specifies that I will receive it but then there'll be another step after that where I inspect it, and after that inspection is when I will actually take ownership or not take ownership. So it could well be that the things show up in my possession on Monday, but it's not till Wednesday till we actually make a decision. The key thing here is the person who's going to be doing the inspection needs to be notified. So when the goods receipt occurred, a quality management document will be created, which will be routed to the appropriate entity in my organization to tell them you need to come down and inspect this. But we don't really talk much about quality management in this course other than the brief description I gave you a moment ago. But we did talk about it previously in regards to stock management where we talked about we could put something in goods awaiting inspection and then after the inspection it could be put into block stock if it did not pass inspection. So that's where all of the things related to that would actually happen. Um, I have a transfer requirement to the warehouse if I am doing warehouse management. So if I'm not doing warehouse management, then the material document just says I put this in this storage location. If I am doing warehouse management, then what actually happens is the, the goods receipt turns into, generates this transfer requirement that's okay, I'm gonna take it to warehouse 17, and then when it gets to warehouse 17, they're going to decide where they want to put it and they'll generate the appropriate documentation for that. So if the people doing the receiving also do the putting away in the storage room, that's this scenario right here that I've denoted with a one. If we have a more sophisticated warehouse management system, then that would be uh, scenario number two here. We print out a hard copy of the goods receipt slip. Now, notice, you know, you might say, really, we're going to actually print out a hard copy? And in a lot of organizations, that, that is part of their process. And in fact, a lot of times, what's actually going to be printed out here is something that would be almost like a large sticker that might get affixed to the pallet or put on the boxes themselves. Um, 
I don't know if any of you ever worked any place where that happens, but particularly a lot of times when you have perishable merchandise, the individual boxes will get stickers on them so that we know, okay, this is part of the batch that came in on Monday, this is part of the batch that came in Thursday, and it can help with stock rotation and other things like that. So we could automatically generate that as a part of the goods receipt process. There's somebody who ordered this stuff who probably is waiting for it to come in. That information can be found on the purchase requisition. Uh, that person's now going to be notified. Hey, your stuff's in. You can come and get it now if that is the appropriate behavior for them. And then the last thing is here, the purchase order and purchase order history um, are, are updated. And I think that's a typo. I'm pretty sure this should say the purchase requisition and purchase order history are updated. Otherwise, that seems to be pretty redundant. So there's a lot of stuff here that happens when goods show up. And, and once again, I would suggest to you that most of this is just pretty logical, but generates an awful lot of really, really good test questions. Uh, the big thing that we talked about before is we see reference here to transaction documents, financial accounting documents, and um, what's our other one here? Material documents in, in this particular list here. All right, so we're blasting through here the procurement process. We have now moved on to the goods receipt process, and we have successfully executed that. And so now the next thing is we, we get the bill. Now, I would point out to you, and someone made an observation about this uh, a moment ago that was a, a very uh, good one to note. That's interesting. I started running Office 2016, and um, one of the things that they have done in Office 2016 is changed some things around. So they've made it harder for me to change my pen color here. These two things could happen in different orders. We are presuming that the goods show up first and the invoice shows up second. It may play out in exact opposite order. It doesn't matter though. Everything we just talked about happens when the goods receipt occurs and if the invoice verification or the invoice receipt happened before then, that's not a problem. So the invoice might show up here or the invoice might show up here. It doesn't change either way what we do in the goods receipt step. That's always the same. So at some point, I'm going to get the invoice receipt. Now, notice the title of this slide is invoice receipt and verification. I might get the invoice on Monday, but not be in a position to verify it uh, until Friday because part of this is going to involve knowing about the, the materials that are referenced in the invoice. So what's going to happen here is a fairly traditional three-way match. We're going to compare the purchase order with the goods receipt document with the invoice. And so that's going to be part of this invoice verification process. So the trigger is, we get an invoice from the vendor. 
All right, at that point, we're going to go out and we're going to reference master data and transactional data and other things related to these documents that exist in our system. And we are going to engage in this, this three-way match. Now, I, I think we um, made reference to this previously, but it, it bears talking about in a little bit more detail here to make sure we all understand this. Purchase order-based invoice verification. Sounds really, really weird. In purchase order-based invoice verification, I settle all items regardless of, of partial deliveries. So what do I mean by that? If I ordered, ordered 100 units, and we'll keep this really simple, at, at $1 a piece, then I would be expecting to pay $100. If I do purchase order-based invoice verification, if the vendor shipped slash what I received was 98 units at a dollar a unit. Now the question is, how much do I pay? If I am doing purchase order based invoice verification, I pay $100. And I expect that the vendor will either reflect that as a credit that's sitting out on my account, or the vendor will have shipped me 98 units and back ordered two units, and the next time a truck comes in from that vendor, they'll be the two units that I was shorted previously. You might look at that and say, why would a company want to do that? Why would I pay for something I don't have? A lot of times we do this just to make life easy, particularly if I do a lot of business with a vendor. I, I figure that sometimes they may actually short me on some units, but they'll, they'll eventually get those items to me. And so I don't want to mess around with recalculating how much I have to pay and doing all of that. You send me an invoice, you send me a purchase order, I do invoice verification against the purchase order. If the invoice and the purchase order agree with intolerances, I, I pay it. So in this case right here, I'm really not doing a three-way match because I really am not checking the, the goods receipt document. If I do goods receipt-based invoice verification, then I'm going to do the two three-way match the true three-way match. So the only difference here is one of them is going to leverage doing the goods receipt uh, as a part of the evaluation, and the other one basically is not going to consider goods receipt. And it just depends on um, relationships that companies have with vendors, the kinds of things that they order, and whether or not it makes sense for them. I, I have no data to share with you regarding what percentage of companies do one versus the other, but I really do have to believe that goods receipt-based invoice verification is probably the more typical one because it's reflective of the way the company would do the three-way match to make sure they're not in any way being defrauded. Yes, sir. It's a good question. Um, 
it would probably depend on the issue of tolerances. So I might go ahead and pay the 100. I might also pay 98. Um, it's, that's then going to be based on how the individual company chooses to do it. So I'm not bound to either alternative in that situation. And it probably depends on if the vendor has indicated this item is been back ordered and we'll deliver it to you on Thursday, I'd probably go and pay it. If the vendor puts a note there saying we're out of stock and we're never ever going to get any more of these, you need to find another supplier, then I probably wouldn't pay it in that situation. And normally on invoices, um, you'll see reference to things that have been back ordered and such. So verification data, just what we talked about here. I won't go through the slide. It's there for your reference, but it, it talks about the different documents consulted. All right, so now we get to the more, the, the important, easiest, easy to mess up part of this, which is the financial accounting implication. The financial accounting implication is I will credit the vendor account for $7,500. That results in, through account determination, my accounts payable account also being credited by $7,500. The offsetting debit is to the GRIR account. And we now can reflect that the GRIR account has offsetting debits and credits, which means if those are the only two transactions in that account, my account balance is effectively zero. Notice that a few slides ago when we looked at this before, I had a little parenthesis that said valuated stock. Notice there's no such reference here because whether this is valuated or non-valuated, I handle it the exact same way. Okay? So step, and I hesitate to say step two, although we use the numbers one and two here, if the invoice shows up before the goods receipt, we do everything exactly the same way, which means that the debit is sitting out on the GRIR account waiting for its credit friend to show up to indicate that we've actually gotten the merchandise in. Questions? All right, so what happens when an invoice is posted? The material master gets updated. Now let's think about this for a second. Why would the material master get updated? We said at goods receipt, the material master got updated with the quantity and with the value. Well, remember that on the material master, I have two different ways of calculating the value of that material. What, what were the two ways? I'll give you a hint. The last word was cost. And there was something, something cost, and something cost. Standard cost, and you're really close with the other one, and uh, moving average cost. Okay? So for a given material, if I have elected to employ moving average cost, when I get an invoice in, that's when that's going to be recalculated does not happen at goods receipt. The goods receipt records the fact that I now have more of them and use the old data for calculating the value. When I actually get the invoice, if I'm using moving average cost, that will result in that being recalculated, which will update the valuation. 
once again, when I get an invoice and I've got the same, oh, I fixed the typo here, purchase requisition and purchase order history are updated, and I see uh, an FI document here created, what we were just looking at here to reflect the transactions uh, associated to the GRIR account and to the vendor account. And just to uh, reiterate that, the GRIR account gets, gets debited here and the vendor account gets credited. So, true or false, when I get an invoice, I credit the GRIR account. False. So we got to make sure we know for which activity we're debiting, which activity we're we're crediting, okay? Uh, questions? Yes, sir. Run the, run the second part of your question by me again. The GR, we're talking about the GRIR account, correct? It's not really when we think of a cash account, when I debit a cash account, that means I have more cash. When I credit a cash account, that means I have less cash. Um, but the GRIR account is more about memorializing amounts. In this case, memorializing, okay, when you got the goods receipt, we credit this account. And when we got the invoice, we debited this account but I, I'm hesitant to think of it in terms of more or less. It's just we, we're debiting it, we're crediting it, and then ultimately those will offset each other. It's not like this is a bank account that I can say that there's this many dollars associated with it other than those being the amounts like you see here. I don't know that I fully get your question so that may or may not have actually answered your question. So confused. Um, the only thing I could say is just, if nothing else, just memorize that when you get a goods receipt, you're crediting that account. When you get the invoice, you're debiting the account. The GRIR account, that's the actual name of the account. Doesn't seem like it's okay. So I mean, uh, what? Okay. Sometimes with accounting stuff, it, it might have to come back to that. Um, I don't know that I could explain it any better than that, but if you still have questions about it, let me know and I'll, I'll try and go through it again for you and try and explain it. Absolutely, which is great because that leads us to what the next slide is is here, which is um, paying for stuff, which is what happens here. Um, the payment process, how do I know that it's, it's okay for me to pay? And typically the way companies will do that is they'll look at the GRIR account, and if we have offsetting entries associated with a particular purchase, then, then we know that we can verify the invoice 
and, and we can make payment. Now, there's a couple different ways payment can happen. Payment can be done manually. You could have an accounts payable clerk who logs into the system and looks at all the different bills and puts check marks next to the one that he or she wants paid, and then they click a few buttons and the bills get paid. What is much more typical is companies run payment programs. And when they run those payment programs, the system just goes through, looks at all the invoices that have been cleared to be paid, and, and generates the appropriate payment, whether that means printing a check or transmitting the funds electronically or whatever have you. I, I have not run into this too much in the last few years, which is a very good thing, but it used to be fairly common for you to contact a business and maybe the business owes you a refund and they say something like, oh, we pay bills every other Friday. So your check will be generated you know, next Friday. And there are a lot of times you run into companies that say, you know, we only pay bills once a month. So you miss the cutoff for this month, so it's gonna be the third week of next month before the check gets created. And that was because this idea of this payment program, um, this could be run daily, this could be run weekly, it could be run at whatever frequency a company desires for it to be run. It could be run multiple times a day at that point. But either manually or by running an automated program, a company wants to set up and, and look at the, the payment mechanism. And, and the idea here is going to be very, very straightforward. Um, once we have indicated that an invoice is good to be paid, we might want to apply some additional logic here related to the payment terms. And, and I think I, I mentioned this to you before. If, if not, it's a, an example worth sharing. Uh, there was a company that I, I talked to in the past that they did invoice verification, and then once an invoice was verified, they sent off payment. Now, the trouble was they were trying to take advantage of terms like 210 net 30, which meant they would get a 2% discount if they paid within 10 days, but they were literally sending off payment the same day they received the invoice and not taking advantage of the fact that they could have held on to that money for nine more days. And so they updated their payment program to make sure that the money got where it needed to go on time, but it didn't get there earlier than that. And they were able to save a significant amount of money by holding on to it longer and taking advantage of interest payments and other things like that. So exerting some control in when the money actually leaves your hands, as long as you're within the payment terms, is something that a lot of companies might want to do. Well, we have a three-step process here. We have goods receipt, invoice verification, payment processing. So now it's time to process the payment. Notice the GRIR account has the offsetting debits and credits. So that tells us, okay, this is good to go. Check mark, that, that's good. And so what I have to do now is I need to wipe out my obligation to my vendor. I need to pay my vendor. And of course, that's going to cause me to have to part with money. I always like to look at it from the money perspective first. I've got to part with $7,500, which means I'm going to credit my bank account for that much money. So I know that the other side of this is going to have to be a debit, and what I want to do is wipe out my obligation to that vendor. So I debit the vendor account for $7,500, which results in the automatic posting 
to my accounts payable account for the $7,500 as well. So notice when all is said and done, this account has no balance left on it. This account has no balance left on it. This account has no balance left on it. What I'm left with after executing all the steps is I got a $7,500 increase in an asset after paying $7,500 for it, which is what would have happened here if all of this happened instantaneously. You know, if I went to a flea market and bought something for $7,500 for cash, we wouldn't have all of this other complication here because I just pull out my wallet, part with the $7,500, and walk out with the invoice here. But because it's a multi, or with the inventory here, but because it's a multi-step process, we have to involve these other accounts to make sure that everything is handled appropriately. Questions? All right, well, the good news is we are, we are almost done here. So we have now, we've had the goods receipt, we've verified the invoice, we have paid, and we are here at, at the end. So we've now stepped through this entire document, or this entire diagram. We've talked about all the different documents. We've talked about all the different financial accounting postings. So, so just by way of review here, um, which steps have financial accounting implications? Payment processing clearly has financial accounting implications. Okay. Invoice verification has financial accounting implications. And goods receipt. So notice the things with FI implications are, are pretty much the last things that happen in the process. Which, that's why a lot of companies said, you know, we'd really like to start capturing some of this information earlier in the process, and that's what commitment management does for us. Commitment management, if we have it turned on, allows us to relocate some of these postings and handle it in a slightly different fashion in our organization if we want to do that. But goods receipt, you know, just keeping, keeping this in big picture, goods receipt now means that I either have a new asset that I didn't have before, or I have a new expense occur related to whether I am doing valuated or non-valuated. Invoice verification is I now have a, a new liability. I now have a vendor that expects me to pay for this stuff that he has shipped to me, and so I need to capture that. And payment processing right here, is I now have less money than I had before because I have to pay for this. So that's kind of the big picture things that go along with each of those, those three different steps. So we talked about transaction documents as we went along, purchase order, purchase receipt, or you may purchase order, purchase requisition, RFP, quotation, uh, delivery document, goods receipt document, invoice. So we've talked about a lot of transaction documents. We've talked about material documents. Which steps here have material documents associated with it? Which steps have material documents associated with it? Goods receipt has a material documents associated with it. CO documents. It's in our list. We didn't really talk about it, okay, and we won't. This is now a part 
where um, we just don't have time to dig into all of the cost accounting ramifications, although we did at least talk about that in terms of this being an expense here that might be assigned to a, to a um, cost center. And then we talked about the FI documents. So I think we've, we've done a fairly thorough coverage of the procurement process here. Um, you know, lots of data sources here that are going to be a part of this. We talked about material master records. We talked about vendor master records. Um, we have purchasing documents, material documents, accounting documents, invoices. So the bottom line here is we've generated an awful lot of documents that we could use for the sake of, of creating different kinds of reports. And I could go into the system and pull up any of these documents and, and use that in understanding what's going on. And in fact, um, instance reporting. If I wanted to find out, is the stuff here yet? Um, I could go into the system and check the status of my purchase order or check the status of my purchase requisition. So that's a kind of reporting that you can understand where people in an organization might want to do. They requisition something. They want to see if the purchasing department has acted on it. And if so, they want to find out when they're going to get their stuff. Online lists just give us the ability to go into the system and say, show me a list of all the open purchase orders. Show me a list of all the invoices that I haven't paid. Show me a list of all the purchase orders that's gone out to Acme Supply. Show me all the invoices I've received from Acme Supply. So there's lots of different online lists that I could create that would be things where I would specify certain parameters and the system would go out and, and create that list for me. Work list, remember this term denotes things that are telling people, hey, you've got work to do. And so open requisitions. You know, if you worked in the purchasing department, you might show up at work in the morning, log on to the system and say, show me all the open purchase requisitions. And then your job is to step through each of them and say, okay, that one's ready to go. Click, click, click. It's on its way. Okay, for this one right here, we need to find a vendor for. And you just work through the open requisitions and, and hopefully handle that in an efficient manner. Invoices to be paid. Um, what are they? You know, we might, as we said before, have someone whose job it is to go through and say, yeah, let's go ahead and pay this. Let's not pay this. Or we might use a program for that. Same thing would be true with the purchase requisitions. Now, there is a facet of the system called the logistics information system. And remember, we talked previously about this idea of information structures, which are these records that can be created and pushed out during a process that enables us to kind of look at things in a more summary fashion for the sake of trying to do um, some analytics type operations, some OLAP type operations. And so we do have that uh, supported here as well um, in addition to things like, like drill down being supported. And the last two screenshots or the last two uh, diagrams here really are, are kind of illustrations of what that would look like. If I wanted to look at my different purchasing groups, you know, I have a U.S. purchasing group, 
and a European purchasing group, and I can see uh, how much they have purchased, and I might elect to drill down by a particular purchasing group, I might elect to drill down by a particular vendor, and I can navigate through the system and see, okay, how much have I bought from this vendor, how much have I bought during this time frame, and so on. Pretty straightforward stuff that, that uh, we can expect the system to do for us. There are other things that we could do that are based on these, these um, information structures. And this is the idea of I could go in and create a report. You actually do this in one of your labs, create a very simple one, where you pick different materials and you pick a vendor and you get like just this little summary report that shows you how many times you've ordered from that vendor and what you've ordered and so on. If we want something more sophisticated than this, we need a tool other than an ERP system. An ERP system is just going to give us these very basic elements of analysis. Well, I feel like we should blow a trumpet or something at this point because we are here at the end of the procurement process.